I wonder, did anyone get a, a brand new Bible for Christmas? Even an e-version. Callum did. Well done. Have you opened it yet? Good. Fantastic. Toby got one too. Brilliant. You got a waterproof Bible. It's great for the Isle of Man, I tell you. Have you used it in the bath yet? Ah. Oh. Look what you can get. Josh, you got a new Bible. You got a mini Bible. That big. Magnifying glass as well, or is it? Just got, anyway, uh, so, <laughs> great resolution to make. Uh, the, I was listening to someone uh, this week, and they're saying, you know, we, we trust the scriptures, but we don't expect you to trust the scriptures just on, on our word. You know, the, the, the point was made that you, you don't read any book saying, well, this is true. Any literature, when you open it, kind of, you don't come to it saying, well, this is true. You, you read it, and you make decision on what's in it, what, how it holds together, the truth that it contains, you make that, that assessment. And we, we, we love the scriptures in this church. We preach on them every week. We encourage you to, to read them. So please do, if you're undecided or thinking about faith or journeying to Jesus or not sure, the scriptures are a really great place to start to find out about Jesus or to be renewed and Challenged again as, as the year turns to, to think, yeah, it's, it's slipped a bit. My Bible reading, it's just sort of fallen by the wayside. But a great time to sort of say, Let, let's start afresh. Let's begin again. So we're in John's Gospel, chapter 12 and verse 20. It's going to be on the screen too. Now there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the feast. This is the fat piece. Um, Feast of Passover. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. Philip went to tell Andrew. Andrew and Philip, in, tone, told, in turn, told Jesus. Jesus replied, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. The man who loves his life will lose it, while the man who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My Father will honor the one who serves me. Now my heart is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and will glorify it again. The crowd that was there and heard it said it had thunders, thundered, others said an angel had spoken to them. Jesus said, this voice was for your benefit, not mine. Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. But I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men, all people to myself. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. 
the crowd spoke up. We have heard from the law that the Christ will remain forever. So how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Then Jesus told them, You are going to have the light just a little while longer. Walk while you have the light before darkness overtakes you. The man who walks in the dark does not know where he's going. Put your trust in the light while you have it, so that you may become sons of light. When he'd finished speaking, Jesus left and hid himself from them. A good hero never dies. Apparently, I was telling a bedtime story to my goddaughter, and you know, it gets to those in those fairy tales, the cliff-hanging moment, Prince Charming and all that. I thought about telling a nasty ending, but I hadn't got the heart in me to do it, you know, where the hero dies. A good hero never dies. I was thinking about this, and I was, I was thinking of trying to contextualize it. I'm sure you all uh, can remember back, well, some of the older ones like me. Do you remember the old black and white Flash Gordons? And at the end of the half-hour episode, with that, with, you know, the, with that, well, you remember them, don't you? If you don't, find it on YouTube. It's great. At the end of the, uh, the half-hour episode, Flash Gordon would be in the worst cliff-hanging moment ever. Ming the Merciless would have got his way again. And you would be like, how on earth is Flash Gordon going to get out of this one? And, you're, and then the credits roll, and you're like, oh, a whole week to wait. And it always came good. Or maybe a little bit more contemporary. Do you remember the, the 24 series? Jack Bauer. Uh, the whole premise of 24 is that there's 24 hours. I, I watched it a few years ago. I happened to be given the set. And it happened to be coincide with, I, I got laryngitis and, and all that, and I was quite poorly, and I just couldn't sleep, so I actually watched 24 in 24 hours. It was... <laughs> did my head in, actually. Because like, at the end of every um, sort of session, the idea is that over a 24-hour period, you follow real-time what's going on. But at the end, because, because it's a Hollywood film, at the end of every episode, there had to be a cliffhanger. And having watched it back to back in 24 hours, there were too many cliffhangers, and I, I got a bit fed up with it. But how, again, was Jack Bauer going to get out of it? Or if you're bang up to date, shows how in touch I am. Doctor Who. <laughs> Christmas edition. Matt Smith, the Doctor. You know, they've got a great wiggle room, haven't they, Doctor Who? He doesn't die, he just regenerates. Uh, Mickey Spillane, uh, best-selling author of the Mike Hammer detective series, said this, Heroes never die, otherwise you don't have a hero. You can't kill a hero, or Sylvester Stallone on Rambo. Heroes don't die, die they just reload, apparently. But Jesus is telling something different. Up until this point, He's been teaching and living, showing what the kingdom is like profoundly. And in John's gospel, he talks about signs, signs that show, 
Signs that demonstrate the breaking, the presence of the glorious, long-awaited kingdom. And those signs kind of draw to a close apart from one greater sign. And the story changes from these, these 12 chapters. There's this hinge point that takes place in chapter 12 where Jesus has been showing and, and the crowds are wanting to come and make Jesus king by force or king by acclaim or, or celebrate him. And alongside this, the growing kind of clamor of the establishment saying, we want to get rid of this man. But in this chapter, there comes a, chain, a change. That the, the direction of Jesus, the goal that he'd set out upon is reaching fulfillment. In the language of the Christmas story, the point of the baby in a manger is coming to fruition. The hints that have been there all along. The myrrh at his birth, or Mary anointing Jesus for his burial, are now pointing to this event. In chapter 12, 20 to 26, we see what happens. Jesus is at the height of his popularity. We know that people have been coming and coming, and you know, he just rose Lazarus from the dead. And that's pretty spectacular. And, and even in those days, without such a celebrity culture, I'm sure there were curious people who were coming to see Jesus and Lazarus. Who is this that can do these things? But we're told in, in chapter 20, because of the Passover, lots of people, God-seekers, people who were aware that, that this, this Jewish faith had something to teach them, some profound insight into the life and, and, and meaning of life. And we're told that there were Greeks there. There weren't Jewish people. But even the Greeks, those furthest away from the plans and purposes of God, they thought, had come to Jerusalem and they'd heard about this Jesus. And they wanted to come and meet him. In Just backtracking a little bit, in chapter 11, uh, verse 44, 48, the Jewish leaders say, if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and then the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. And in 12:19, so the Pharisees said to one another, see, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. And now so there were some Greeks among them who went up to the feast and asked to meet. I'm not really sure why they go to Philip. And Andrew, some speculate that their names have a kind of Greek origin. Uh, maybe they thought, well, they understand us Greeks. They've got Greek names. And they said, can we meet Jesus? And Jesus says, now, now is the time. When the Greeks have come... Those who are far away, those, you know, this is just Jesus of, of Nazareth. This is Jesus who spent a lot of his time in Galilee. This is Jesus who didn't have the internet to broadcast. This is Jesus who went from village to village. But he was so remarkable that word had spread. And Jesus said, the hour has come. Now is the time for the Son of Man to be glorified. And he says, unless a kernel or a grain of wheat falls to the ground, it remains a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. 
this pivot point. What happens next to the hero? You see, there are two choices laid out for the listeners, for us. The two choices that were available for Jesus as the net drew around him and as he steadfastly looked to the cross. The first way would be the way of self-protection, closed to suffering. If he chose it, he could do a couple of things. He could stop walking around in the open. He could go underground and disappear. He could move around like a gorilla sleeping in a different hideout each night. Or he could simply tone down his message and say, I'm sorry. A bit over the top, wasn't it? He could find more pleasant ways of phrasing things. He could stop eating with the outcasts and start showing more respect to those in power. If he loved his life and wanted to save it, that was his option. But he said, on the other hand, he loved something more than his life. And there's a second way open to him. And we can call it the way of self-offering. That way contained not only the possibility, but the probability of suffering. Not as the main goal, but as the byproduct. If he kept walking around in the open where anyone could get to him, if he kept speaking and living his confrontational message, then eventually he would suffer for it. We've seen that growing. No two ways about it. He was crossing the lines of power you do not cross without getting electrocuted. His only choice was whether to cross them or not. A grain of wheat cannot die, uh, cannot grow unless it dies. If you got a kernel of wheat and you covered it in plastic, and you put it around your neck as some bit of jewelry. That's all it would be. For the seed to do what it was meant to do, it had to be given up. It has to fall into the earth and be buried. It has to sit down there in the dark until its hour comes, when it will swell and crack and hatch new life, a green shoot that will climb towards the sun until it breaks through, becoming a golden stalk of wheat that bears much fruit. But if you go to that plant and you dig around in the roots looking for the seed, you don't find it anymore. It's dead and gone. It gave up its life so they could become more wheat in the world. Six times in the gospel so far, Jesus has said his time has not yet come, but now it has. One seed needs to die in order that many should sprout. The hint is here. The Greeks have come. Look at what he says in verse uh, 32. He says, but I, but I, when I'm lifted up from the earth, will draw all men or all nations to myself. You see the impact purpose of what Jesus was doing. The Greeks had come and and Jerusalem was abuzz, not only with the feast and festival, but Jesus amongst them. His reputation had spread. Now is the time. 
Now is the time because he was willing to lose his life, because his message mattered so much to him that he was willing to show people what it meant instead of just telling them about it. His seed bore much fruit, more than it ever did whilst he was alive. You see, because Jesus was willing to die, God could raise him from the dead. Because Jesus was willing to die, people could discover that death was not the worst thing that could happen to them. Because Jesus was willing to die, a new community could form in his name, one that redefined its life around his death and resurrection. Because one seed died. Christmas with family is sometimes one of those times that particularly when there's not believers that you, in the family, you sometimes end up in those big conversations about life, meaning. A question posed recently, do you think the world is better today than it was 2,000 years ago? Discuss. <laughs> Whilst the roast potatoes are waiting. Is the world any better After 2,000 years, I think so. You see, when we look at Jesus, he could have disappeared and vanished and just left his teaching to be passed on, but he didn't. He chose to die a grain of wheat, but from it looks what's happened. You see, it really is Jesus Christ and his teachings that lie behind all efforts at social reform. Look in the history books. They don't really tell you this at school. But so often, those who pioneered social change were people who loved Jesus. It was Jesus who put an end to slavery. It was Jesus who abolished the gladiatorial shows of ancient Rome. It was Jesus who elevated the status of women. It was Jesus who sanctified childhood. It was Jesus who demonstrated the dignity of every person. And that translates into all sorts of spheres of life, industrial relations, law courts, trade unions. It was Jesus who pioneered and motivated a global push for education for all. It was Jesus who motivates service and generosity for the poor globally. It was Jesus who, by his emphasis upon the worth of human personality, confers on each one of us dignity and liberty. It was Jesus who has given us a new way of life, a new standard of living, a new power in living. Isn't that amazing? A grain of wheat falling and dying to bear much fruit. The world is better, not yet perfected, but the world is better because Jesus chose this way, the way to the cross, the way of death, in order that life should come. And says, brothers and sisters, if you would follow me, be like me. In the grain of wheat of your life, what do you choose? As Jesus speaks on his death, 
He mentions a phrase that he'd already spoken about with Nicodemus back in chapter 3. He talks about how he needs to be lifted up. And the picture goes back to Moses and they're in the wilderness and there's the sickness in the camp. And, uh, and God tells Moses to construct this pole and, and on it uh, there's this serpent. And medical people now have that symbol of a, a brass, kind of bronze snake on a pole. You can look that up later or go and see the doctor. And, the, and it comes from that moment where anyone who is sick or in trouble in the camp in the time of Moses would just have to lift their eyes up and look at this pole in the middle of the camp and they would be healed. And Jesus refers again. He says, but when I am lifted up from the earth, all, I will draw all nations, all peoples, all humanity." To me, the great adversary, Satan, defeated. And I just close with, with this most profound thought. There's this kind of strange moment where Jesus says, glorify my name, Father, and this voice booms from heaven, and, and maybe they were Greek and didn't understand the language, and they said it was like thunder, or, or maybe they hadn't got ears to hear what was being said to them. But God says, I have glorified it, and will glorify it again, that there's this sense throughout John's gospel of, of the moment where, where Jesus takes center stage isn't elevated to kind of a palace or a throne or, or some great kind of you know, uh, lying the witch in the wardrobe moment where the four little ones are escorted into that great, in that great palace scene. But rather, Jesus is stripped naked and escorted outside Jerusalem and hammered onto a cross. That for John's gospel, that is the glory of God being fully, fully revealed. And that is a weird thought. That really gets us scratching our head and thinking, that's not how it goes. Heroes don't die. But this one does because he shows a greater way. Jesus is glorified in his life, but so much more in his death. And the crowd don't get it. They, they say in, in verse 34... The crowd speak up. We have heard from the law that the Christ will live forever. So how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? It, it, it's, it's not intuitive, is it? Heroes don't die. Heroes save the day. Heroes come back in the nick of time, just kind of escaping the clutches of death and hurrah! But not this true hero. A phrase that, that Phil used in I can't remember where it's come from, but it's really true. It says, you know, Jesus in his birth, you know, God could have, couldn't get, make himself any bigger to impress us. You know, that you look at the universe, it's pretty impressive. Any grander, any bigger, any, any more spectacular wouldn't have done it. So he chose to become an infant to connect with us in order for us to know him, to relate to him, to become in our frame of reference. You see, the cross is the glory of God. 
Not just the place where Jesus bears judgment, but he does that. But it's also, it's also the place of conquest and judgment of Satan, where he is stripped of his power, where sin is stripped of its power, where death, as Jesus embraces it, is defeated. Now, I know you're all going, hallelujah, inside. I hope. This is the glory of God. As I prayed earlier, I, I, I talked about how this, sometimes we think of power as, as kind of the bigness and the might. And he uses this slightly strange phrase of the glory of God, and it's one of those slippery words that means lots of things. And I was dwelling on it, I was thinking, what does the glory of God mean? And, and you can discuss this over coffee, because it means quite a few things. But way back in the Old Testament, there were a number of times that the glory of God appeared. Let's do a little Christmas puzzle quiz. Can you remember any of those moments when the glory of God appeared? Solomon's temple, that's great. When they dedicated the temple, I'll come to you in a minute. They, when they dedicated the temple, the glory of God fell and, and all the priests had to ush, shuffle themselves out because they couldn't dwell because God was there. And, and they were like, oh, the glory of God's here, we better get out. <laughs> Amazing. I think, yeah, Moses um, was uh, was a friend of God. We're told, and he would meet with God in a tent of meeting, and it was sort of this way of setting up. And Moses' face was kind of like shiny, not because of some ule product, ule, or you know, but meeting God, God with them. Anywhere else, the glory of God comes from in the Old Testament. When Moses is up on the mountain. Uh, when he's been given the Ten Commandments, the fire that's up there and the people down below are going, oh, uh, when Elijah is up there. And, and notice in that story of Elijah, there's this kind of, God says, I'll reveal my glory and there's earthquake and there's wind and there's fire. And Elijah's really smart. He says something really profound, that God wasn't in those. He's in the still small voice. See, all the way through the Old Testament where the glory of God shows up in those kind of cloudy, fiery presence, you know, the pillar of cloud, the pillar of fire. There are some other moments where God shows up and it just makes us go, scratch our head and go, that's strange. Occasionally God turns up and it's like he's in human form. Read the story and you'll find it because you've committed to read the Bible again, haven't you? And there's a number of times and you can come and tell me, oh yeah, that's that time in Judges and that's that time in Exodus and, uh, and that's where this... God person seems to show up and they go, oh, wow. But it's just glimpses and hints of, of God amongst his people. And here, John is saying with all that backstory, the glory of God is manifest amongst us. He starts his prologue. The word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. And we beheld his glory. And there's no more glorious moment of perceiving who this God is that we speak of than Jesus as he's crucified. Jesus as his most powerful act isn't, as we sung, it's a good lyric, flinging stars into space, but to cruel nails surrendered. You see, the power of God is the love of God 
fully embodied in Jesus Christ. That as he's nailed to the cross, that is his throne. As people say, well, how do you know about this God? And I say, look at Jesus. How do you know how much God loves me? Well, look at Jesus. His arms outstretched and said, this much I love you. I love this world. This is what life is about. Says God as he dies for it to rescue it, set it free, to reclaim it, to undo all the mess that we, you and I and we have made. And this is the glory of God. Emptying himself and saying, I was here for you. I am here for you. My power is being fully expressed in this overflowing love that says there is nothing that will separate you. There is no sin, there is no accusation of Satan, there is no circumstance, there is no situation for any person in any place on this planet through any year that we have enabled that is not beyond the redemptive power of God. This is the glory of God. And look at what's happened. 2,000 years later, in Jesus embracing his destiny, in the hero dying, a far greater kingdom has been established, a far better way. And John recounts it for us. And it's great that we preach that this is Christmas. I love the fact there's a little baby at the back that is being carried around and if you turn around now, um, everyone will be wondering why everyone's now looking at you with the baby. <laughs> Isn't that a lovely picture? It's a really Christmas picture. Joseph and Mary cuddling the baby. The thing about Jesus, he's glorious in the manger, but so much more glorious as he grows. Ultimately dying. Whoever serves me must follow me. And where I am, my servant also will be. My father will honor the one who serves me. The crowd are perplexed. Even the disciples don't get it. We're told on the road to Emmaus, Jesus explains it again to them. But I suspect you're perplexed this morning. Because this really is different. This really is a different way he calls us to. To say, I'll lose my life. Such that fruit may come. All of us are here because someone chose to follow Jesus. Chose to make a difference. Chose to live the kingdom way. And the impact of that, either through testimony and word, but also through loving, kind acts, has made the difference to us. The seed that Jesus died as his life decimated is bearing fruit. As we embark in 2014, let's keep living the Jesus way. Let's stand together.